identical. Today, we are going to explore all the ways that nature is our teacher. What is there to learn from nature? And how do you take nature's natural ways of being and translate them into direct ways that we can improve ourselves? How do we do that, Danny? I have no idea. Do you? Yeah, I've got some idea. Okay, I lied. I actually also have some idea. Amazing. So some ideas plus some ideas probably equal enough ideas. Lots of ideas. Lots of ideas. We have ideas. Amazing. Okay, this is a good place to start if you have a podcast. You want to have ideas. Yes, yes. So Jesse, share with me your first idea. Let's talk about one of the ways that we can learn from nature is through plants. Okay, plants are divine teachers. Now, I haven't personally read this book, but I've been recommended it, The Teachings of Don Juan. Some interesting ways to interpret that message. Beautiful, divine wisdom. Actually, that's a lie. I've read a few pages of it, okay? I will get to it. It's on my to-read list. But plants, more specifically, flowers. How can you learn from flowers, Danny? I don't know. You tell me. Do you want me to tell you? I do. My favorite way to learn from flowers is to perceive them as joy. They are beautiful, delightful, incredible-looking things Um, And I actually heard this from, it might have been the autobiography of a yogi, but one of the things I love that they said about flowers uh, was that flowers are literal manifestations of joy. And I remember when I used to live in Boston and I was far from my family and a lot of my loved ones, I remember walking through the local park in spring and trying to download joy from the flowers and Honestly, just staring at the flowers for an hour would change my energy so much. That's really beautiful. You've got the colors, the patterns, the sacred geometry, the smells, and flowers are the the gonads of the plant, right? Like the reproductive, the sexual organs. They are. And so in that sense, they also, even though they visually and scent-wise are super joyful, they also are the like hopefully pleasurable for the plants to be spreading their seeds, calling in the birds and the bees. So in that way, they symbolize joy and pleasure. Amazing. Well, we've got flora. You go straight to flowers. Mm. My mind goes straight to trees. Tell me why. For me, there's, I mean, I'm always drawn to be in the forest, in the bush or sitting at the base of like a big old wise ancient tree I feel like their perspective on everything that happens in the world is just so vastly different to what we experience and I think that if you have the opportunity to really connect with let's say a super ancient tree like a really really big old tree with roots that spread out and around and into the earth and branches that extend up towards the sky. If you sit at the base of a tree like that or in a tree like that and really contemplate that tree's existence, you re- I have personally received this, me- this message of or the perspective that I've gained from, from this kind of experience is an alternate perspective on the passing of time. So for a tree, things move so much slower in their personal frame of reference and everything around them just passes them by in a blink of an eye to the point where it's, it doesn't matter, you know, even though they're, they feel unconditionally loving and just super accepting, everything that happens to them just moves and flows and passes with the tides. So we are, but a blip in time to the tree and just the way that even all plants, flowers, plants, trees bend and sway in the breeze, whether it be a clear, calm day, whether it be torrential rain, whether it be a cyclone, whether it be like super windy, whether it be a forest fire or whether something be, you know, someone be coming at it with a chainsaw. It just is. It just is, it bends, it sways, it snaps, it gets uprooted, it gets chopped in half, whatever it is, there's this sense of slowness, steadiness, acceptance and surrender that I get from the nature of a tree. It's like, these are the kinds of ways that we can feel into the energy of the natural world around us. These are the kind of lessons that I've derived from trees. And I suppose that's where the saying, the wise old oak tree comes from, right? 
it's all knowing and its perspective on time is vastly different to our own. Yeah. So we could definitely learn, you know, we could ad- adopt some of that wisdom into our own lives. When we sit next to a huge, for me, I love those big old fig trees. I used to climb them as a kid and they look like, they look like bat caves. You know how they have those little ridges in them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. cool, man. I just, yeah. There's a lot of, actually, you said the word acceptance and I think that's a huge one as well. One that I um, maybe have heard at, at, at a point, perhaps in a rum dust lecture, where you, you can watch a flower or a tree in this situation move with the wind. And that sort of is an example of acceptance because the tree or the flower is never in any sort of resistance. Yeah. It goes where the wind takes it. It allows. If Yeah, it allows. And if the wind pulls it out of the ground it allows nature is in a constant state of non-resistance and you know when i said before that i was living in boston and really emotional and sad and missing my loved ones i was in a state of resistance right because when you're fixating on what you don't have you're resisting the present and yeah i guess on a subconscious level or even sometimes on a conscious level you go and you you personally would start climbing an old tree i might go look at pretty flowers or whatever Mm. it is we both might go on a hike or something and we do naturally lose whatever resistance we're carrying to whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's just two little ways, but there's so much more. Yeah. And even just again, continuing on with flora, there's different ways of learning from plants, right? There's like the properties of a plant, such as a tree, you know, root systems digging down into the earth, deriving moisture and nourishment from water in the soil water and soil and then there's the concept of like sturdiness and then of growing up towards the sky towards a certain space of light and clarity and freshness but then there's also like the nutritional properties of plants where you have like fruits and vegetables and stuff that nourishes us and then the cyclical nature of the growth and the fruiting and then the shedding and then the seeding and the regeneration and Mm. all of that And then you've got like the chemical properties of plants where you've got psychedelic plants and medicinal plants. You've got herbs and you've got medicines and you've got mind altering substances that come from plants and trees and mushrooms and things like this. Mushrooms are like their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like how many lessons, how many ways can we learn just purely from flora and how have these lessons shaped the nature of human consciousness? Mm. You know, there's the concept of like mushrooms and hallucinogenic plants are how apes evolved into mankind. I'm yeah. not saying I necessarily fully subscribe to that narrative of how we came to be, but I think to some extent it's definitely true. Some Someone's eaten a mushroom at some point in time and been like, oh my God, I've solved solved this problem that I've been contemplating or like I figured this thing out that no one's been able to figure out before for sure there's been a lot of that if you talk about mushrooms specifically what comes to mind is Paul Stamets's first experience um, where for those who don't know he had his first dose of medicinal mushrooms and he climbed a tree and while he was in the tree or perhaps before he started climbing it a really heavy thunderstorm came on and uh, he grew, grew up with a stutter I think until he was I forget what age, but I think into his teen years, he had a stutter. Someone gave him a bag of mushrooms. He wasn't weighing things. He wasn't knowing what a medium dose versus a heroic dose was. He was using the tree as protection, holding onto the tree, the tree that he had climbed up whilst on mushrooms. And he said to himself, get rid of the stutter. I don't want to stutter. I don't want to stutter. And purely through the power of his intention and the power of the substances, he he woke up the next morning without a stutter. So... The power of intention is a huge thing, but in this situation, like if he wasn't on the psychedelic mushrooms, would he still stutter today? If he hadn't have climbed a tree in the middle of a storm. What a crazy experience. This all came from the natural yeah, world. The na- nature healed in its, and I suppose that's what mycelium do, isn't it? They go in, they repair. Yeah. They bring things back to optimal functionality. And I think the way that they heal is so complex. Like they lead you back into the natural world mm. and they plug you in to the intention of nature plants trees the storm the lightning the thunder the wind like it is all a part of that alchemical equation that elemental equation and who's to say that years and years of therapy or pharmaceuticals could have ever done that certainly not overnight certainly not not that impactful in minutes you know (laughs) 
I haven't seen the, the specific therapy or pharmaceutical that has done anything that miraculous just yet. While they have done great things, that's, that's a living, breathing miracle purely derived by a tree, a storm, and mushrooms, and possibly the most important ingredient, the power of intention. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. Anyway, but fungus is really its own category. It's we should have a separate episode. What can you learn from fungus? I think we have. I think we have so much more to learn from fungus before we even attempt an episode like that. Because I've just started oh, working yeah. with um, like reishi and cordyceps mushrooms every single day, and I'm yeah. only just beginning to tap into what I'm feeling, which is a definite change in my state of being. But oh my again, God, like yeah. also. Um, traditional Chinese medicinal herbs are a part of this mushroom blend that I'm using, beautiful superfreeze mushroom blends. Um, and these are herbs that build up in your body over a period of time and induce a state of change. And this is a whole other system that I don't understand, but again, all derived from the teachings of the natural world and led by the plants, like really tuning into the frequency and the message of, the, of these medicines and how we are supposed to use them. What is the dosage? What is the regularity? These are all things that we need to learn from the quietness and stillness of plugging into nature and mm. seeing where it takes us. Yeah. Or, or the wisdom of generations after generations passing down information where we can find solutions to problems that are not so modern, but might fix problems that, you know, are inherently ancient, you yeah. know, anxiety, depression. These are, I suppose, I, I believe ancient problems to some extent, but we had very different um, solutions back in the day to what we do now. And so I think it's good to jump into the past and learn from, I guess, the preservation of fire or tradition in some way that allows, you know, ancient Chinese medicine to come to you in a little packet. Yes. And that being said, today's episode is not sponsored by Superfeast Mushrooms. I personally am using the Jing and the Shen blends. The Jing is a kidney tonic and the Shen is specifically a blend for quietening the mind and just managing all of that mental energy. For me, using these two blends together just brings me back into my body, settles my mind, brings me back into my heart and grounds me, clears my mind, freshens me up and settles me. And hey, I haven't been using them for very long, but I'm already feeling it. So just imagine what this is going to unlock with continued use. Let's get back into it. So, so much to learn from flora, from plants, and so many ways to learn from plants. And really, I think the essence of this episode is how can we go out and immerse ourselves in the natural world to learn? And what are other ways that we learn from immersing ourselves in the natural world? Well, let's talk about fauna. Let's talk about the beautiful creatures, animals that surround us. And for Jesse and I, we've had pets for pretty much our whole lives. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, so and we we've, we've had very very different pets to one another. So, Jesse, tell me about some of your furry friends and what you've learned from interacting with them over time. So, I've pretty much had a dog my entire life, if not multiple. And I've learned a lot, man. Like I got to say, the first and main thing is unconditional love. Unconditional love, you know, dog is man's best friend and they will always love you unconditionally. They always perceive you as being like the best person in the world. And that's why when you walk into the house, they're so excited to see you. Nothing brings them more joy than just their owner coming home. They're barking, they're scratching, they're spinning, they're dancing. They're anything to do with your very own presence. They love you unconditionally. They also are protectors. They're also guardians. Like they will, can, they, when you're asleep, they're holding down the fort, right? Mm -hmm. Anything goes wrong, anyone breaks in, They've got you. They'll wake you up. They may bite them if they're trained accordingly. Um, and the other thing they'll do is they will totally help you process your own emotions. If you're feeling something that uh, is hard for you to work through, emotionally speaking, they will be feeling that alongside you. Now, this happened to my dog, my most recent uh, pet, um, and my mom. They had a very amazing kinship, and the dog was helping my mom process emotions that she wasn't necessarily able to process on her own and it was manifesting in the body of the dog. Uh, but anyway, I digress a little bit. They are just the sheer um, 
displayers of joy and unconditional love. And those are the very little creatures that I have always had in my world. And I always, you know, I would love to have more in the future. You know, I haven't had one for the past two years. Um, because that most recent passing of my dog was pretty heavy on the family. She was like one of us, you know, but yeah. Yeah. There's like, I mean, even apart from what you said, those qualities of unconditional love, loyalty, um, emotional processing, even beyond that, there's like so much to derive from everything that you just said. For example, you're right about like cats can get sassy. Birds can be vindictive. (laughs) You know, lizards <laughs> yeah. don't give a fuck, but yeah. dogs, like they just are so in their, in their expression of love and excitement enjoy. and enjoy, but also in their expression of everything. Like I've been around dogs that are, um, anxiety ridden or that, you know, because it doesn't matter why, but they've, they're anxiety ridden or they're, you know, they've been a little bit neglected just for the day or whatever. And like in that, their expression of it is heart wrenching, you know, like when they're hungry or when they really want to play or when they miss you, like the whimpering and the clawing yeah, at the windows yeah. and all of that. Like it's they're so, they're very transparent. Exactly. They're such heart based beings. And even in that, just watching a dog and the way that it kind of wishes to interact with you, there's so much to take from that, but you're right about the unconditional love because I think especially with dogs, like, I know so many families who never wanted to have pets, never wanted to have a dog. But now that I have that they have a dog, it's almost like they know how to love that dog better than they've loved their children. And if only they could self-reflect and just kind of move that love and care towards their children or something, you know, they could go a little bit deeper. But even in that, it's like dogs can teach you how to love with a bigger heart, how to feel your emotions more fully, to express yourself more clearly and to have an unconditionally loving and open heart. Yeah. I totally really hear do. that. What about you though? What about, what have you learned from animals? Yeah. I mean, I love animals so much. I've tried to have so many different animals throughout the entirety of my life. Well, the animal that I have connected with the most in this lifetime is, is birds, our birds. Just because my parents never really wanted me to get any of the crazy other funky animals that I wanted. And they ended up getting arguably the craziest and funky animal of all. They did. What well, just out of curiosity, what were the animals you wanted initially? Oh, a dog. It was always a dog. Always I a dog? Always wanted a dog. Just and a then, dog. Just a dog, man. Just a dog. And then when it wasn't a dog, it was like a lizard and it was I don't know. Crazy stuff. Farm animals, horses, bugs, whatever tarantulas um but (laughs) i i I, i've had birds for about 18 years now of my life and they're so vastly different to many other creatures and particularly to dogs um and it's always such a journey learning birds because there's the notion of flight you know they're i feel like them and ocean creatures are ultimately free and honestly I don't wish that birds are pets. Like I don't wish for them generally to be pets. I, I, I think that I won't go into it, but I think that ocean creatures and birds should just be left where they are because fish have the whole ocean and birds have the whole sky and that's what they should have. And it's so hard to own a creature and to keep it in your home and to decide like, do I let this bird be fully flighted? Do I let this bird be fully flighted just inside the house or inside and outside the house? Do I clip their wings and is that giving them an okay life? And like, what are the ethics and morals behind that whole thing? So there's like all of that to consider first and foremost. So the the complexities of that. Mm. And then there's, I'm going to refer everyone to this incredible podcast called The Emerald and specifically a bird, like an episode on birds, I think it's called the imperative of mystic flight, birds and the imperative of mystic flight. And this podcast goes through birds and their role in the evolution of human consciousness, like how birds have impacted us over the course of time and how certain languages are completely derived around bird sounds, bird calls, the notion of birds, how Egyptian hieroglyphs, like Egyptians had something like 300 different hieroglyphs that were just birds, which is so fascinating. Birds signify the crack of dawn and they're like the last things to go to sleep. 
at nighttime. And there's just like so much symbolism interweaved with birds. But some of the, some of, some of what we can derive from, you know, some of what I've taken away from the emerald and something that is interesting to ponder when we consider that birds are constantly flying all around us. There's so many different types of birds, you know, every time you walk outside, you see a bird. There's this notion of look up, look up towards the heavens. They are free. They can go anywhere. Where do they go? What do they see? There's this idea of perspective, the the bird's eye view of zooming out and seeing, being able to zoom in and then zoom right out and adopt radically different points of views. Um, there's the idea of shamanic flight that they talk a lot about in the emerald, which is the concept of really adopting the viewpoint of a bird and traveling outside of your realm of consciousness and how this evolved into human beings recognizing that they could invent the airplane or human beings being able to cast their mind's eye out of their human body and towards visionary states of being. And so it's again about this elevation of consciousness is adopting a different point of view. And then for me personally, with my birds and my pets, there's like, even Jesse, you know, with my birds, like body language. They're very hard to read for people who don't have birds or know birds well. Danica will point at a bird and say, oh, he's anxious or oh, he wants this person or whatever. And I'm like, how the hell do you know he hasn't changed a single millimeter of his demeanor yeah and you're like i can tell i'm like what the hell do you mean (laughs) yeah so because birds can't change their facial expressions you know they have a beak and they have eyes and their nose is fixed and they're you know they they don't have like muscles in this they don't have squishy faces it's just the blushing though the blushing is a thing jasper's because jasper you can see his face but what about birds that have feathers on their cheeks Mm. jasper is a blue and gold macaw i have a blue and gold macaw and indian ringneck and i've also had a princess of wales parrot for a very long time who is no longer with me. Um, But what I learned from having to communicate with birds is that the concept of deep presence, like deep presence about coming at my birds from a real regulated state and watching and listening and trying to understand a language that I do not speak. And then not being able to speak to them back in that language. Like I can't make my, I can't pin my eyes. I can't make my pupils big and small. You know, I can't ruffle my feathers. So how do I talk back? How do I respond? How do I understand? How do I respond? It's just, it's an art form. Um, it's a real subtle, like subtle. It's a subtle language. It's and very it, subtle. Yeah. yeah. And then birds are so temperamental. They are not unconditionally loving. They can be cheeky, evil, vindictive. Sometimes they don't want a bar of it. They're just, they're just like, leave me the fuck alone. I want to be in my cage all day today. My mm. bird's very like, my macaw is very like, he's very affected by the weather. Like on sunny days, he wants to be out and in the world. And on rainy and windy days, he wants to be in the cage, leave me alone. I'm gloomy. I'm in a mood. Mm. So yeah, what I've learned is just acceptance, deep presence. Um, and then it also like plugs me into the natural world in the sense of like, when they're feeling off, what is it? Can I feel into the weather? Can I look at the quality of light surrounding me? What time of day is it? Are there birds of prey around? Are there other animals around? How are the other birds acting? It just drops me into this, like, because they're they're not domesticated, nothing like dogs, nothing like even cats. They're so close to their natural instinct, primal. It also asks me to drop into a more primal state of being. But then they're just funny. They're just funny and they scream and they talk and they're like stupid sounds. They love farting noises. And they like, when you do silly things, like put on a pair of sunglasses or like shake your head around. Like it just brings me into my joy as well. Really brings Mm. me into my joy and my childlike essence because my macaw has the brain of like a three or four year old. Yeah. So then it just invites me into my inner child, you know, but then my, my severely traumatized Indian ringneck. Well, that is a lesson in, patience persistence and radical acceptance maybe even non-attachment you know i can't have her be Mm. free like my other bird was so it's it's a case by case situation yeah whether to have a bird that's flighted or have a bird that's you know clipped or whatever yeah how you treat one animal isn't how you treat all animals every animal has a different backstory a different understanding of the world and it has to be case by case right yeah it's so easy to look at uh go into a pet store and see birds with clipped wings and go that's evil they can't fly they have a shit life 
some some birds don't want to fly. They just want to sit on your shoulder and be like your, you know, how there's that stereotype of the pirate that always has a parrot on him, like kind of repeating everything he says. You've seen that before? No, yeah, everyone has. Yeah, okay, 100%. right, right. You didn't nod your head. Polly wants like, a cracker, like the red, yeah, the red yeah. and green macaw. Classic, yeah, yeah, classic, yeah. right? So, and I met a bird recently at that bird sanctuary that we went to that has never bitten a human in their life and just wanted to play with humans and it would scream in your ear and it would want to sit on your shoulder, land on your head, be silly, but it, and, and sort of like scratch its head next to yours. It was just so cute, but it makes sense that birds being flattered or not flattered or being treated differently, it's always case by case when it comes to you owning them. Yeah, when it comes to you owning them, that's the thing. Mm. Doing what's best for the bird would be leaving them in the wild. Mm. I'm serious. Yeah. I don't think they should be domesticated. And so you can't judge yeah. an owner, especially like Molly, like she's a the severely ringneck. traumatized. She's my Indian ringneck, severely traumatized, massive behavioral and aggression issues yeah. to the point where it's it's jeopardizing the fam- my safety and my family's safety to have her be free flighted in my home. That's so I'm now having to question, do I clip her wings to try and remedy that? And what are the the repercussions of that? And it's just, yeah, there's, I mean, even in that, like there's so much learning within my own mental, emotional states of like owning an animal, owning a creature. But anyway, to zoom back out a little bit, like apart from owning a pet, just look outside at the birds. Mm. Let them carry their con, your, your consciousness up into the sky, into the wind. Look at an earthworm the way it burrows into the ground. Think, contemplate the notion of a cheetah running across the plains of Africa, Mm. hunting its prey. Like what qualities do they embody? What do they tell us about hunting, killing, feeding, living by the moon, living through the cycles of life? Like same deal. What can we personally take away from the lessons of the natural world through fauna? It's a good point. I really love the thing you said about perspective and bird's eye view. What a cool way of phrasing uh, macro perspective versus micro perspective. Radically zoom out, right? Birds are also, because they zoom out so much and can see so much, that, and, and some birds are known to have some of the greatest vision on this planet. And so that makes total sense that they the, the term bird's eye view came from, like eagles, for example. And then to see how high up some of these creatures can fly, it just, it blows your mind. It's like, how the hell they breathe up there is insane. It reminds me of um, this enhanced sensory experience. Like they have this superior vision. Reminds me of another example of that is the mantis, right? They can see, we can see, I think, the full variation of three or four spectrums of color. And they can see that, but 50 spectrums of color. That's so wild. <laughs> so again, perception, but from the perspective of a, of a land creature, can you imagine what colors they're seeing? Yeah. You just you just can't, right? And like animals, like bats or like mole rats that are blind or that mm. can't use their sense of vision. And then they have other sensory perceptions like electromagnetic field or thermo, like thermo, well, I don't know, thermo radiation or whatever it is. Like they can perceive temperature and they can perceive radiation. They can perceive you know, even like altitude differently. What yeah. if what if there's a creature that can see different colors depending on the altitude that they're at? Like there are just, there's so much that we don't perceive. And then we assume that reality is fixed as a result of our senses. Yeah. But even like this, this is when I think about things like supernatural occurrences. And I think that like, we just call them supernatural occurrences, but like what are animals seeing and perceiving? Like, if you've ever had a pet and you've lived in a space that is very kind of spiritually or supernaturally open, your animal will see and sense shit before you will. Yeah. And sometimes you'll have that supernatural experience and the pet will too, because they are so plugged. They're so open and they're not restricted by their limited senses, but also their conditioning. Like we are conditioned to see and feel what we see and feel, Mm. you know? And so the natural world is tapped into all of these frequencies and all of these waves and fields and vibrations. And yeah, I just think that there's like, they paint the vivid color of reality that we cannot see within ourselves unless we contemplate life through their perspective. Yeah. And um, I guess the last thing I'll say about animals is that a lot of people have told me this and I've never really looked into it too much, but supposedly cats have a superior way of connecting not superior but you know a really natural way of connecting to the spiritual plane where they're seeing things well before we're seeing them 
and responding to those things well before we, you know, maybe even perceive them. Mm. And so that's pretty cool for cat owners out there as well. Like they must be on some level, the way you're connected to the, the, um, fundamental characteristics of the bird and me, the dog cat owners must feel a version of that with connecting to that other plane. Yeah. And that's why black cats are associated with witches and mysticism and stuff like that. Mm. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but I think there's a correlation there for sure. There's something to be looked at and, uh, I want to know more about it. I'm curious. And then again, like what can we learn from the natural world? Well, we can contemplate things that are outside of our perspective and understanding, right? Mm. Like this is all, this is all painting a pretty cool picture of reality. So, we have flora. We have fauna. Um, Doesn't that cover everything, Danny? Isn't that absolutely every single thing that we've thought of? Absolutely not. What about the ground beneath our feet? What about the water that falls from the sky? What about the clouds and the wind and the sun rays and all nah, of that kind of stuff? No, nah, those are just conspiracies. Those aren't actually real. You're right. Thanks for listening. Thank you, guys. But for serious, what about the elements? I totally agree. There is something to be said about each of them. What are the elements, Danny? I, I, it's that I just know Earth, Wind, and Fire because of the band. <laughs> um, and what's that famous song they have? Reptember. That's the one. Yeah, it's about reptiles in September. Yeah, amazing. It's a very famous song. But anyway, <laughs> I've heard of elements before. Look, I'm going to let you guys in on a little bit of a secret. It's not really a secret, but... The way that we're moving through this episode is we're starting off really grounded, really tangible, really practical. You know, we're luring you in and then we're going to get a little bit more esoteric with it. Wait a minute. Are you saying you had an agenda? I have an agenda. I always have an agenda. Yeah. That's pretty evil, man. But I'm telling them. So is it evil? Yes. Okay. Well, (laughs) I don't care. I'm going to keep going on with it. So this is where I think we kind of bridge the gap between practicality and esotericism, but still super grounded in reality because we are talking about nature today. Let's talk about the elements. And I don't want to dive too deeply into a real like alchemical kind of astrological symbolic understanding of the elements, but just peripherally. (laughs) Let's stay on the surface and keep it practical. Many schools of thought... And there, in many schools of thought, there are four natural elements that represent our natural world. And this is water, earth, fire, and air. And these elements are correlated with specific properties. For example, water is related to emotion or intuition. Earth is related to matter and foundation. Fire to spirit and to purpose. And air to mind and perception. That's super general. Super general. But let's bring it back to something tangible. So like, okay, you're telling me mind relates to mental energy, you know? Sorry, air relates to mental energy. Air is mind. What does that mean? So how, how, how did people get to that real alchemical, esoteric understanding of the elements? I think it's just by doing what we're doing today, which is contemplating the natural world, right? I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, people have been doing this for thousands of years before we even existed and doing these kinds of things as exercises to improve themselves in various ways as a result of maybe a library not even having ever existed in their time. So they'll be learning directly from nature the way um, we are touching on right now, touching on. All teachings, all learning start from what we observe in the natural world before it is guided by man's hand. Mm. So tell me, Jesse, what do we get from direct interaction with the elements of the world? For example, let's contemplate, let's all together contemplate an image of a roaring, crackling fire on a crispy winter's night. Right. Okay. Well, look, everyone has different associations that come up here. But I'm going to try to speak generally, but everything that I say is filtered by my mind and passes through my own association. So take what I say with a grain of salt. But what can you learn from the fire? Well, you said the fire symbolizes spirit and purpose. Now, spirit means something different to a lot of people. But to me, I also, the the word that I use for spirit more often is the word soul. So what can I learn about the soul and purpose? Well, I think they are synonymous. I think your soul has its own purpose. 
And I think that when you sit in front of the fire, whether it's sub, uh, subconscious or conscious, I truly believe you become more in touch with your own soul's purpose. You become more in touch with your own direction. It's this, everyone loves going camping, putting on a fire. And, you know, if you're lucky, you'll have some marshmallows and some chocolate. But is there something happening to your body, to your mind, to your spirit through sitting in front of a fire? Uh, even all the while eating marshmallows or whatever you're eating? I'd say yes. And I would say it's definitely related to your purpose, definitely related to your spirit. It's an amplifier. And for me as well, and this is probably my association coming out, it has to be an appreciation for the soul, for the spirit, for all the souls that exist around you and led you to exist. I always found this as a kid that fire leads me to appreciate my life more. And I can't explain why. Perhaps there's an esoteric text that can, but I've made it a little bit personal and tried to keep it a little bit... Uh, a little bit more interpretable for most people. It's cool. Like you're, you're an esoteric man. You're an esoteric man. I can't deny that. (laughs) I can't deny that. Yeah. Whereas me, like I'm a lot more practical. So I am the kind of person who's like, you're telling me fire means spirit. Okay. Why? Like, what is that? Like, why? That just sounds like some ancient woo woo hoodoo voodoo voodoo. Um, (laughs) Oh, words. Um, No. So like for me, For me, the way I see this relationship is that fire we use to cook our food, right? We used to create these delicious, beautiful, smoky, nourishing meals. Cooking over a fire brings people together. It creates not only a meal, not only nourishment, but an atmosphere, right? Like a warm fire in the cold dead of night is going to call in all the people around it to come and warm themselves and to connect with one another and to get light and to see what's going on around them. So there's that aspect of creation, something from nothing. Yeah. And then there's also, it also comes out of nowhere, right? Like it's just like it isn't and then it is if you rub a couple sticks together. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's this concept of destruction. Like anything you throw into the fire will burn to a crisp, to ashes. A a forest fire will destroy hectares and hectares of land, leave it to a burnt crisp. But then even within that forest fire, there's the concept of regeneration when the seeds of the trees, you know, that are made to burn, burst open and create new life, create new life, fertilize the soil. Yeah. So I see like creation and I see destruction and I see regeneration and I'm like, is this not the nature of spirit? I was about to say that. I'm so glad you brought it there because yeah. when you said creation and destruction, creation and destruction, you said it wasn't and then it was. Yeah. And I was like, that sounds like the soul. Yeah, to me. yeah, exactly. That's Lord Shiva and Mark Ali. It's, it's all of it, right? It's all of it. And it's, yeah, like that's, that's the way I see that deeper understanding of something so simple and so elemental. So let's talk about water. This is your realm. You're a water boy. You're a beach boy. Tell me. I do love the water. I was born by the beach. I was born in a house where I can walk to five different beaches. One of them is a nude beach. Yes, I have been there. No, I haven't been there nude. Uh, I have. Have you? Yeah, it oh. was creepy. Cool, and that's why I haven't. So <laughs> <laughs> I think in some ways, wisdom is learning from other people's mistakes. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's what I'm going to try to do here. Uh, water is the inherent reminder of intuition and emotions, right? So when I think of water, for me, the, my association is ocean. Ocean is purely rhythmic. You can't put the rhythm of the waves into a uh, consistent beat. Sometimes it's a little in front, sometimes it's a little behind, so too is the heartbeat for us, the heart beating, right? So mm. I see the water as symbolic of things that come and go. I heard this fact from a book I read recently. I forget which one it was, but it said something about emotions usually last approximately 20 minutes. Now imagine if you slowed down a wave and it was to last 20 minutes. It goes, it comes, sorry, and then it goes, and then next thing comes and goes. And that's why I think Buddhism talks so heavily about non-attachment. Because if you grip onto one emotion, well, the ocean could in the next second be gripping it back in. And I'm speaking very um, macro and symbolically here, and I'm not really owing to the unique qualities of the ocean itself. So let me try to do that now, okay? Because 
you just mentioned I'm an esoteric man. Yeah. But that's where I, I start. But can I just jump in for a yeah, second? Yeah, Even yeah. in that, like the rhythmic ebb and flow of the tide, the coming and the going evokes something so, I don't know, something so deep and something so... It evokes a feeling yeah. within me. It evokes a feeling like the nature of coming and going. I'm like, oh. And speaking, you know? of, speaking of, I mean, I mean, it's a very good follow-on from spirit, right? Because it wasn't, and then it was. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned just now, like deep, right? The world's depth is pretty much insanely symbolic by the ocean, or yeah. s- symbolized by the ocean. Yeah. We have people who even have fears of deep waters. Yeah. So being scared of depth is to be uncomfortable in water, to some extent, but it's also to be uncomfortable with the depth inside yourself. Mm. It's all—it's all, it all, all symbolic. And when you're talking emotions, and you're talking about connecting to elements. Yeah. You have to—I mean, again, I'm an esoteric man, so I have to go. Well, how does this—how imp- does this apply to my own internal state of being, to my own internal dialogues? What does this symbolize within me? And you know, if I was really scared of the deep, then I'd be scared of my own depth. Mm. If I was someone who you know would never swim out past where they could stand that would be symbolic of me not being able to handle my own deep emotions or just not being able to swim well or <laughs> yeah but yeah i guess that's true as well yeah, <laughs> yeah. but there's if also... you're a kid your your natural instinct is to stay where you can stand but some kids get really excited and they just want to fucking go into the middle of nowhere and swim because they want to see what's out there or they just want to challenge themselves or whatever. I notice when you go to the ocean, when you dive in, you swim, you swim out as far as your breath allows you to in that one inhale. You yeah. know? And there is a certain comfort with your own emotional depth in saying that. Yeah. So I'm being symbolic. But to get back to the more, um, I guess tangible way of perceiving the ocean the ocean is also the kind of thing that envelops you it surrounds you entirely yeah sometimes you can't feel the wind enveloping you yeah but But like when you're in the water you're in it you really you're in it and there is a distinct feeling that of being not only immersed by nature but directly surrounded by it. And then I also believe there's minerals in the water that make your skin look and feel better and it cleanses you and it's just it's just a, a and a healing reset, a refresh. Yeah. And yeah, like it depends on your relationship with it, right? And also external circumstance so that like when you're floating on a calm, still body of water, you can float on your back in starfish position, eyes closed, sun beaming down on your face and you're just like in it. And yeah, you're in it, but like mm. you're calm and serene and weightless and feeling good and beautiful and grateful. But then if you're in the middle of like, if you're caught in a rip, for example, yeah, that's a very different experience of being in it. Like there are so many different well, ways to be in the body of water, to feel in the body true. of water, the emotion that's evoked, the fear response or the lack of stress response or the feeling of weightlessness. But even talking about like shallowness versus depth, like shallow, shallow waters are comfortable because we can see and we can feel the bottom. But the vast depths of the ocean are it's shadow work, right? It represents the shadow. It represents mm. what we cannot see or feel or even like delve into or understand completely. It houses so much though. It houses everything. Yeah. So there's like, this is emotional potential to me. And also just like sitting by a body of water. How does that make you feel? Everybody loves to sit by the sea. Mm. I find naturally when I am emotionally overwhelmed, I will go and just watch the ocean. Just watch it. Yeah. And I don't know why it, it helps perhaps of the ebb and flow thing, perhaps of the symbol, the symbolism, but watching it allows the rhythm of life to move in a way that you, it, it's almost symbolic of non-resistance, yeah. right? Because you're watching, you know, the sand's not saying, no, don't leave me water. And, you know, the water's not saying, I'm not coming back here ever again. It's just coming in and going out, coming in and going out. And so I, I believe if you watch that enough, you can do that with your own emotions. Mm. You kind of just download it, right? Mm. And that's something interesting I've learned from the book, The Journey Home with Radhanath Swami. When he met his first guru he uh, in India, he um, was instructed to go and sit on a rock in the middle of the, the river Ganges for a month. Every day, he would just find a local cave, sleep in the cave. Uh, he would wake up in the middle of the night, there'd be pythons and spiders walking by him. He would just sleep there, wake up, go down to that rock, uh, 
meditate the entire day. At the end of the day, he'd go to the local um, fruit or vegetable stand, get a carrot or a cucumber and a small handful of peanuts, repeat for a month. And he said that he learned so much from the river. Mm. And that's an interesting way to perceive it. Like with Even with what I mentioned before, having you know hard emotions to work through and just sitting by the ocean, you download something very yeah. deep and subconscious. How deep do you let yourself go with mm. it as well? Mm. You don't need to be in the deepest part of the water to let yourself go deep with that body of water. Mm. How, yeah, and like this is something I want people to take away from this episode. Like go sit, whether it be in your backyard or whether it be in the nearest forest or by the nearest ocean and just spend some time there receiving, like super open, out of your mind, drop out and receive. And whether you connect with, ah, the water's so blue or the spirit of the ocean spoke to me today. Like there's going to be something that you tap into and that you take away from these elements that help you understand a little more about the nature of being yes precisely well said and then like let's contrast water with the element of earth right the earth is the fundamental element it is the foundation it holds the ocean it is the rock that everything is bound to holds all matter it it is matter yeah it is it doesn't hold matter it is matter yes it's the riverbed it's the creek bed it's the ocean floor it's the sand it's the soil it's what the trees root into it's at the root of everything it's at the base of everything it just is but it's also necessary for all things like we can't have any water any fire any air without earth without the foundation and it is also a symbol of i mean depending on how you relate to it either sluggishness lethargy like being too heavy being bound by gravity or abundance like learning to work with it okay we're heavy and we're lethargic and if we eat too much we feel overwhelmed and then we get sleepy and then we get tired and then we eat too much every day and then we get fat and then we get lazy and or You can learn to work with it. Like what do you plant and what do you grow? And you can eat that beautiful fruit, that beautiful vegetable that you're growing. And then from that, you can harvest the seeds and plant more and more and start to share that with your neighbors and share that with your friends. And then they start to bring you things back. And all of a sudden we are learning about the nature of abundance, right? So it's like excess versus abundance, like not like, or like attachment or heaviness versus liberation through access to all things so this is yeah again like this is the alchemical notion of our relationship to earth yeah i've actually heard like an interesting example of this uh called grounding where people will go and put their feet in the soil uh and they will actually feel a heightened sense of connection to the earth and to themselves and to the lower energy centers of their body and you know, they'll start, they'll, they'll notice things like they won't overthink as much and have, you know, racing thoughts as much. And then there was a more extreme example of this from this guy who had major amounts of chronic pain. And he took, I believe it was a copper wire and two, I think, pieces of metal with electrical tape on both sides. He put this piece of metal into the earth, wrapped, around a, wrapped it around a copper wire, connected that to uh, that copper to a piece of metal and electrical tape which he put under his mattress somewhere that he wouldn't actually um, somewhere that he wouldn't actually feel or wouldn't disrupt his sleep. And then he would, they would uh, create a certain electromagnetic frequency in his body while he was sleeping that many studies were showing they were able to uh, rid things like, like chronic pain and body tension and all kinds of ailments just disappearing purely from the earth's electromagnetic frequency being harvested that's bad. It's so impractical, though. It's so impractical. I mean, that's, that's what I because the I'm first time like, I heard that, yeah. I was like, "How do I do this?" Yeah, I'm and just like, like, "Go get your feet on the grass." <laughs> but no, but I hear you. I hear point. you. It's that's, about harvesting the, the technology. But yeah, like that's the point here, though. It's on a molecular level, the soil, the grass. Yeah, the soil, the grass is negatively charged, and so negative, negatively charged ions are. They can be thought of as 
so they're, they're stress relieving. They're like the yin energy, feminine energy. So there's, there's less of that yang. There's less of that like stress induced, push, 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 go, go, go. They bring us back into like, that's why it's called grounding. They slow us down. Yeah. They regulate our bodies. They release stress from the system yeah. and they charge us up with that fin, fin, what? Feminine yin energy that energy. we need to help us slow down, regulate, de-stress detoxify and move on with our day and this is what grounding does for us if we understand how to relate to that element effectively this is what it's again all about again contemplate the ocean get your feet on the earth like how can you relate to your natural world in order to change your state of being to learn how to be a better person exactly more fully embodied yeah pick a specific element that you feel more drawn to I encourage you to go out there and just place your feet in the ocean or whatever it is and just see what happens. That's the thing. You really have to go in with an open mind. Yeah. Be, don't sit there thinking, is this working? Am I feeling better? No, this is not working. What am I going to do next? So I should go to the beach. I should, I should go to the shops. I should, if you have a busy mind, you won't be able to hear the quiet call of nature delivering you some information, some kind of feeling, even if it's as simple as I just feel calm. That's so nice. You know, then you got heaps out of it. Emphasis on heaps because like you said about the negatively charged ions, like that's that's a huge thing. There is a lot of information on that online. I encourage people to look into that if they're curious. I don't. So I encourage you to just go put your bare feet in the soil or on the grass and feel it instead because that for me is my agenda for today's episode. Yeah, you can go read a scientific paper or two, But just fucking feel the grass on your feet for 10 minutes and tell me you don't feel amazing. Tell me that you don't feel a little more relaxed than when you started out. And then if you do feel a little more relaxed and you're like, what happened there? Then if you want, (laughs) you can go and read a paper or something, but you don't have to. Danica's got a good point here. See how it feels rather than intellectualize It's very easy to intellectualize. It's very easy for your brain to try and logically understand something. It's actually much harder to feel the difference in your body. Yeah. Let us know if you do. Yeah. And this is what does it for you. This also like ties it all up with the relationship uh, between air and mind, right? Because air is there. It's definitely there. We can. Air is there. Air is there. (laughs) It does things. We can see the trees blowing in the wind. Cyclones are devastating. When there's no air on a hot ass day, you sweat your butt off. Fundamentally though, just like thoughts, even though they affect change, they affect change through feeling ultimately without sense, like without feeling sensation, it matters not. It matters not because it is invisible. It is an invisible force. And just like mental energy that is completely abstract, you cannot see what I'm thinking unless I ground it in reality, unless I affect matter, unless I manifest it. This is exactly how mental energy works. And that is wind. That is air. Yeah. That's a really cool one. It's very tricky to find a very specific... um, manifestation of air in nature because it's kind of everywhere as you said air is there right but one of the ones that i think displays that very well is a mountain we climbed pretty high up a mountain recently danica and i and uh i got to the top point and danica sat and relaxed there and then i realized oh i can keep going so i kept climbing and the higher up i got the more it felt like the wind was trying to knock me down and the wind was really strong up there and it was even colder And I got a picture of myself pretty high up this mountain. But I remember uh, looking at this beautiful scenic landscape that is Australia's Blue Mountains and feeling the air so strongly and having to, you know, encapsulate the feeling of groundedness in order to keep me from being blown away. So you have to use some elements, you know, to to counter other ones when they become excessive. A hundred percent. How do you put out a fire? Obviously. Water, right? And then the removal of oxygen as well. But yeah, so they all interplay with each other. But the mountain is really cool because it symbolizes um, vast perception. Yeah. What we were talking about, the bird's eye view, they go much higher than mountains, right? But you still get a version of that in, in a tangible sense 
when you stand at the top of a mountain or somewhere where you see vast mountain and you're, mm. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And you particularly love the mountains though, right? Yeah, but it's also like mountain air and the trees and the lushness of the forest. And I do like the height and the cliffs and the perspective. Like it does a lot for me, but it's that mishmash of all the beautiful elements. And yeah, so. So just elaborate quickly. When you say mental energy is associated with air, um, how does this manifest in your life? And how does air, how does you interacting with that element help or change you in some way? Um, For me on windy days, I feel frazzled. I really feel frazzled. I am not comfortable in the wind. Excessive wind makes me feel really uncomfortable. I I actually have a full body somatic reaction to it and I can't focus or think. And I know I'm not nuts because I see it in my macaw. He doesn't dig the wind. Mm. I don't know what it is. He's funky in the wind. Uh, It's not a bird thing. It's a him thing. But like I said, (laughs) like for me, again, it's like abstraction versus reality. Like too much wind is going to funk everything up and around, but also like without grounding in practicality and reality in matter, without bringing that air back to earth, it means nothing. If it's super windy up high, but not on the ground, it means nothing. It's only until we deal with physicality that we can begin to affect change, to begin to understand why wind is important. And it's also like the interaction with the other elements. Like I think in and of itself, again, I think in and of itself, wind is unimportant. But I think, for example, when you're trying to build a fire, too much air is going to blow out the flame. Too little air means that fire is not going to burn. But just enough air with a with a good spark is going to have built a strong lasting fire. If you, you need to position the log so that there's airflow all the way through, you know, it's that combination that allows the fire to burn. Yeah. So that's how we can understand how this deeper understanding of the elements relates to our selves, our nature, our state of being. So learning from nature, we've got the plants, we've got the animals, we've got the elements And finally, let's zoom right out and perhaps get a little bit more esoteric with the whole situation. We have the earth itself and beyond. I am talking the planetary bodies and the cosmos themselves or itself. Them, it, it's all the same thing. So let's go with the planetary bodies. This is the movement of the planets, the moon and the sun. For me, there's there's just so much there. There's so many schools of thought, religion, science, so many disciplines that have come away from human beings being on earth watching the evolution of the night sky. We can contemplate via the movement of the sun, the moon, the planets, the constellations. We can contemplate the evolution of time, the cyclical flow of planetary bodies. They represent the cycles of nature, they relate directly down to earth, you know, as above, so below, even think of the menstrual cycle and the moon, how many women sync up with the flow of the moon. Yeah. Yeah. The moon cycle is the same length as the menstrual cycle. You don't have to go very far as a woman to learn from nature. Listen to your bleed. What is it telling you and how, how your energy levels throughout your cycle and when are you more creative and when are you more in flow and when, are you, when is your body screaming for rest and recovery and nourishment? And then how does that relate to the celestial bodies? I mean, that's crazy. The moon speaks directly to bodies of water. The moon enacts its, it, it, the moon, the pull of the moon affects every single drop of water on earth and we are made of water it's profound profound and even even more tangible things like uh full moon energy just around the time around the full moon uh needing more policemen yeah because and school teachers saying kids are more frazzled and crazy around the full moon there's so much uh, mass information on what the full moon does to people not in a negative or positive way but there is more crime around the time of the full moon. Yeah. That's why there's more policemen on patrol. And that's been a known fact for you know police precincts for ages. Yeah. So how does the planets and the moon, the sun, how does this all affect us? Yeah. Well, ancient civilizations have been worshipping the sun for a long ass time. And I think that there's, you could spend a lifetime going into this. We don't really necessarily have the answer here. But if you're curious, man, like if you're a female, you're especially lucky. 
Yeah, I mean, even with the moon, like I think that there's, like you said, like there's on a societal level, there's definitely an impact. And then scientifically we'll say there's correlation but not causation. And that's purely just because we are not able to bridge the gap between scientific and esoteric understanding. Because if the moon enacts change upon our vessels, which it obviously does, I mean, half the population experiences it every month, all month, every month, um, then what about the rest of the planetary bodies? that are bigger and more substantial than the, even than the moon, like she, she has her powerful influence. Like they're the other planetary bodies are also up there doing their thing. It's undeniable. And so the sun as the sustainer of all life and order in the solar system, everything revolves around the sun. So like, what can we learn from contemplating this constantly burning, um, center of our solar system versus the moon that ebbs and flows. Sometimes she's full, sometimes she's not. Sometimes she's red, sometimes she's blue. You know, there's just different qualities depending on what celestial body you're contemplating. And then, yeah. I was going to say, it's very interesting because generally speaking, I know more females who are interested in this stuff and males who are not at all interested. And recently I've been meeting more and more males that actually do follow these cycles and are interested in these things. And it's been making me really happy because while women have their bleed to tell them all, a lot of these things and many women line up their bleeds or have their bleeds line up to different parts of the moon cycles, men don't have that tangible thing inside them. Um, not without digging really deep and becoming aware of themselves. And so it's much harder for males to go into that. But I love that I'm seeing more and more males, you know, explore the influence that planets and their alignment have on their own lives. And yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I completely agree. If you don't have that innate inherent connection to it, that cycle that's flowing through you syncing up with your natural world every month, like you have to take that external interest to be able to plug into it. Precisely. But all it takes, all it takes is to plug into one source of information to see it play out. For example, astrology even just peripherally you learn that there's heaps of eclipses happening this year in the sign of scorpio and then you just look at the themes of your life playing out all the death and the rebirth and the you know shadow work coming up and the old themes and the old patterns and i mean okay let's let's you can't peripherally understand astrology it's so fucking dense and deep but like you know it's it's just like there, our life is cyclical. It's rhythmic. Patterns repeat themselves. Who are we like human beings exist, exist as if there's nature and then there's us. And it's like, what do you think you are? <laughs> what do you think you are? Like the, the wolf bleeds and they are of nature and of the moon and of this esoteric cycle of life. And we bleed and we're not. Like, when did we remove ourselves from that? And then just because we choose to live removed from the subtle flow of life, the fundamental flow of life, we believe that we're not plugged into it and we're not swayed by the same forces. But of course we are. So let me take you to the final tier. You know, we've started from the birds and the bees. And let me ask you if you can to zoom right out beyond the flight of the eagle that soars high beyond the earth's atmosphere, beyond the air that we can breathe, beyond the clouds and the moon and the space stations and the rockets keep moving out and out and out and contemplate the scale of our solar system, our galaxies, the space beyond other galaxies, other suns, other solar systems, other planets. Just contemplate the vastness of existence and then ask yourself, I mean, really ask yourself, not your mind, ask your body, tell me, tell me that we are all that there is. Tell me that we are the most intelligent life out there. Tell me that there's nothing alive anywhere else in the universe. Tell me where mushrooms came from. Because honestly, those spores get into everything. Tell me that mushrooms didn't travel here via spores on a comet that crashed into earth. Tell me that you can tell me that for sure, because it's just screaming at you. Go out into the middle of nowhere where there's no light pollution and speak to the sky and tell me that it didn't speak back to you. It's a good point. I highly, highly recommend doing that. 
and uh, it's really important the one to distinguish what you just said um, or to sort of elaborate on what you just said ask your body and not your mind that's a big thing you're actually asking your soul your spirit to give you some kind of information rather than the next thought that comes into your head mm. that is a very different answer mm. and for the well-trained person they are completely in sync and they're able to tell what a you know standard reaction based thought is versus something that comes from the soul so yeah ask your body even if you have to go put your feet in the water stand on a mountaintop whatever it is ask that question and just see what happens sit there quietly with an open mind emphasis on open mind if you think nothing's going to happen and you believe that then nothing will happen and it will be a very ordinary and boring experience and do you want it to be boring or do you actually want to feel something exciting i would argue that if you're going to do that in the first place then you probably do want to feel something exciting and if you could choose between boring and exciting what would you choose mm. it's an obvious answer to me but yeah ask your body wait quietly and peacefully for the answer and if you're excited by that answer and you want to share it report back to us yeah and we would love to hear it you know how to get in contact with us yeah. it's in our bio of our podcast, but also our social medias. We're human beings. You can contact us. Yeah, please, please, please uh, submit your report to cosmicconduits at gmail.com. But yeah, just to leave it with, you know, drop out of the mind because within ourselves, the mind is a man-made construct. Drop into your body because your body is of nature and your body knows. It knows with a capital K. It has that knowing that everything else does. There is no resistance. It flows. And so it knows which way to go. It knows to travel north during winter or wherever the geese go in winter. (laughs) (laughs) So your mind doesn't know, but your body... My body would know. Your body would know. If I started walking, I'd get there. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you were alongside a a big pack of geese. Then I'd know. You'd you'd definitely get there. And you would know for sure. (laughs) Yeah.